0: It's Friday,
1: May 2nd, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney.
2: And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find
1: us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Swell, or on any other podcasting app. Today's show is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles that you can choose from. Basically, what Audible does is it lets you listen to audiobooks whenever, wherever you want to. And for this episode of Inquiring Minds, they're offering our listeners a free audiobook download, which you can get by going to the following URL, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Go check it out. For today's show, I interviewed Catherine Hayhoe. She is a climate scientist at Texas Tech University, and she also, I think unlike most climate scientists, happens to be an evangelical Christian. And she was recently featured quite prominently on the new Showtime series, The Years of Living Dangerously, which is about climate change. And in the series, Don Cheadle, the actor Don Cheadle, goes down to Texas, not just to interview Catherine Hayhoe, but basically to present her and her story as a bridge between science and religion. And Hayhoe, I should say, was also recently named by Time Magazine as one of 2014's 100 Most Influential People. So her way of trying to bring the message about climate change to evangelicals is really 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 resonating. So in the interview, I wanted to hear from her both about how she reconciles her religion and the fact that she's aligned with a historically anti-science community in this country. How she reconciles that with being someone who's working actually in research. And I also wanted to ask her how she manages to connect to an audience, evangelical Christians, that is really important, really large, but very difficult for scientists to reach. So here's a clip from our interview.
3: I feel like the conservative community, um, the evangelical community, and many other Christian communities, I feel like we've been lied to. We have been given information about climate change that is not true. We have been told that it is incompatible with our values, whereas, in fact, it's entirely compatible with, with conservative and with Christian values. We have been told that it's an issue that only you know, liberals or only atheists or only Greenpeace or only Al Gore would ever care about. That's not true. There are people from every walk of society who care about this issue.
2: Well, I certainly agree with the second half of her statement about how climate change is an issue that we should all care about. That's absolutely true. But I bristle at the first part where she suggests that the conservative community has been lied to. And in part, that's because it suggests that there is this conspiracy of people who are trying to pull the wool over the eyes of a particular community. And I just don't think that's true.
1: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I would say maybe the community or some people in it have been lying to themselves. I mean, they want, they want to not believe it for a variety of reasons that come up in the interview. Uh, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily coordinated per se, but it is sort of a, about, all about reaffirming the beliefs that everybody shares.
2: So that'll be our interview for today. Uh, But first, I wanted to talk about uh, a new study that I saw in the news this week. It's just been published in Nature Methods. And let me just set the context first. You know, we've heard a lot about the plight of women in science, how female scientists tend to face discrimination in terms of unequal pay, and it's harder to get grants, etc., etc. And, you know, there's some studies now that suggest that that maybe this pay gap, at least, is starting to even out, uh, that when women are hired for the same jobs, they seem to earn about the same pay, especially in certain sectors like engineering. But there's still a lot of work to be done. So for example, recently, a number of studies have shown that if you have two candidates, and they're equal in every measure, except one is named John, and the other one is named Jennifer, that John is more likely to get hired, more likely to get promoted, more likely to be mentored, etc. So you know, this is still a problem. And it's not just, of course, you know, male professors who are showing this tendency towards discriminating against women, but women professors too. So th- this is a cultural problem in science, especially um, in the US. And, Actually, even more so in Europe, according to some of these studies. So I was really uh, excited to hear about this new study that came out of McGill, in which the role of women in science is really underscored, just how important it is. And let, let me just <laughs> let me just read the title I know of, of the coming, study. <laughs> the title is: Olfactory exposure to males, including men, causes stress and related analgesia in rodents. So it means that rats don't like. Me- male experimenters. They, they respond to the presence of a male experimenter in the room. It causes them to be stressed out. And that has behavioral effects. And so, of course, since a lot of the science that we do about, you know, especially in medicine, relies on measures of behavior in rats, this is really important. And it's a potential confound in a lot of studies. Uh, so we need women experimenters to balance this out and to, you know, make the rats feel a little bit less stressed. Um, so the way they did the study, essentially, is they had a a number of different conditions. But one was in which they had t-shirts that were worn by male experimenters the night before, you know, the rats were exposed to it. So and the rats showed the stressful response, um, not so with the women's t-shirts, because, you know, of course, women smell better. We can all agree. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the research subjects are voting with their, with their, re- with their results for with more their, diversity. And exactly,
2: with their responses. And, okay. uh, and so they, they showed a higher stress response, uh, you know, and, and the way that they knew that they were stressed out is because the response that they found in, in the rats or mice's bodies was about, about the same equivalent to swimming for three minutes. Uh, which is stressful for a rat or being restrained in a tube for 15 minutes so that sounds pretty stressful but the good news is is that if you don't have enough women uh, you can mitigate this effect by exposing the rats to the males for a while before you actually do your study so there is that.
1: Okay, so I have several comments here. First, a huge missed opportunity in the title of this scientific paper. You know, it's just like wonky title: olfactory exposure to males, and then they say including men. That's sort <laughs> of a little clever part. All right, I'm a journalist. Your title of this paper is "Of Mice and Men." Okay, it's a perfect, it's a perfect title. It's a perfect title. Then you can put a colon, and then you can put your wonky stuff after that. But you got to go with the with the literary title. Uh, I just want to wanna shift gears a little. I mean, Indra, I don't know if you saw, Cosmos this week was actually about women in science. And they did a really, really great job of just showing how these three female astronomers in, this is the early 1900s at Harvard, were basically making all these important discoveries. And in some cases, men didn't want to hear <laughs> what turned out to be right from women. And so, they were, Annie Jump Cannon came up with the modern way of classifying stars, Henrietta Swan Levitt, um, her discoveries about variable stars paved the way for Edwin Hubble's later work. And then uh, the scientist they focused on the most, Cecilia Payne, proved that stars are made up of mostly hydrogen and helium. And that was a finding that many male astronomers of the day didn't want to accept. And basically, they sort of refused to accept it. And she ultimately went out, but she was very intimidated by them and didn't stand up for her views at first. And they turned out to be right.
2: Yeah, I mean, I still have to wonder, though, I mean, of course, I I do see that there's a lot of evidence of of discrimination against women in science. But to what extent is this also a personality thing, which, of course, is culturally influenced. So, you know, women tend to show more of the personality traits that maybe shyer men, etc, men who get ignored by science also show. Um, So that's an an interesting cultural question. Um, But, you know, I, I was delighted to see that Cosmos was focusing on this issue.
1: Yeah, the real thing about it is I was reading, you know, you mentioned it, um, this finding that they do these double-blind studies and everybody wants to promote the male candidate or hire the male candidate more than the female candidate, including the women, and, that, and these, are, these are female professors and male professors, and I guess they have even numbers in the study, or at least they can compare. What is, why does that happen? I mean, that, that's the part about it that I don't understand.
2: You know, I think it's an ingrained part of the culture of science. And yeah. I think that that's what we need to change. And unfortunately, I think it's sort of below the level of consciousness. I think it's one of these things, it's one of these gut reactions that we've, we sort of, you know, incorporate in our, in our upbringing because of the society that we live in. And so these are the hardest to change. Uh, but of course, just bringing them to light uh, allows us to then look at measures that we can, we can take in order to make sure that this doesn't happen.
1: So I'm glad that Cosmos is giving this attention. And if, if Cosmos had only known about the rats, I mean, they could have really worked.
2: <laughs> it's the same week. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: So I'm going to take us back 10 years in the history of the politicization of science. It's almost hard to remember now, but in the year 2002, thereabouts, maybe the most controversial public scientific topic was something called therapeutic cloning. Do you remember this?
2: Yeah, sure. This is the,
1: right. This is the idea of we're going to create lines of embryonic stem cells, but they're going to come from what are called cloned embryos. And the religious right totally hated this. And but it was it was at the time scientists said this is a very necessary extension of embryonic stem cell research. And so let me describe first of all what it is. This is what some legislators wanted to ban in the United States. What you do is you take the nucleus out of an unfertilized human egg and then you put in its place the nucleus from a somatic cell or a body cell, and usually this is, the idea is that this is going to be the cell from a person who's a medical patient. And so, basically, you're putting their DNA in this egg cell. Then the egg cell can start dividing, and theoretically, it could actually develop into a person, then you'd have a clone, and that's what everybody's freaking out about. But that's not what they wanted to do with it, and that's not what was going to happen. Rather, um... What you can do is you can create lines of embryonic stem cells, which are these cells that can become many different kinds of cells. And you will then have a specific DNA um, cell that could become many kinds of cells. So you can use this for various kinds of therapies. That's the idea. So why do I bring this up? It is 2014. And we just learned that two research groups pulled it off. They created embryonic stem cell lines from cloned embryos. Now to me, it's stunning mainly to hear about it now Because I feel like this fell off the face of the earth. And I wonder, was it political controversy that made it take so long to do this? Or was this actually not such a hot scientific idea after all? And people didn't actually want to do it as much as they said they did 10 years ago. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I mean, I think that what happened is is that both of those things. So first off, yes, you know, I think it, it was during the Bush administration that this right. whole uh, stem cell research was, was really halted because of the funding was cut off. Uh, and then there are places like California where, you know, stem cell funding was was continued, etc., because of the governor's intervention and so forth. Um,
1: right. They passed a ballot initiative to fund it.
2: Exactly. Straight from the
1: state because, because Bush wouldn't, you know... <laughs> The government, federal government was interfering. So California said, watch this. We're like almost as big as you. Watch this.
2: Yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, science is a competitive sport. So there were other labs that were working on similar on the same problem, but from sim- from different angles. And I think that, you know, some of those angles got more funding and, you know, people were looking in a different direction uh, as to how to create these stem cells. Um, so, you know, I I think it's a little bit of both, but I think given how useful stem cells are going to be in our medical future, as I see it, uh, it's important to use all of these lines of research until we can really figure out, uh, how it is that we can make these cells. And then of course, not to diminish the ethical question of what does this mean for humanity and et cetera. I mean, I think we need to continue to ask those questions.
1: You know what I think in this, this casts, uh, Uh, light on me that is not, you know, completely the light I want. But I think that one reason that I didn't notice what was happening in stem cell science was because there was no more Bush administration. So there was no more controversy. (laughs) so There was nobody to be mad at for blocking stem cells. And so, right. So the scientists are just going on and they're probably pretty psyched, you know. And they're probably like, finally, we're under the radar. (laughs) And I'm saying, where you've been so long? They've been doing their work the whole time. Right. But I just wasn't noticing anymore.
2: Definitely. But there's still a lot of controversy. And I'm sure that once this hits, you know, the news channels, the, the controversy will come up again. And, you know, rightly so. I don't think it's just the religious right that has you know, qualms about this type of research. I think we should all have qualms about it because it does raise the question of, you know, our humanity and who we are and our DNA. Not that we should stop doing research, but we need to start talking about it too.
1: Right. But but nobody was ever going to produce a clone, right? And it seems like it, if I understand it right, it was actually very, you know, not sure that you even could. Like It's very, very hard to actually pull that off. I mean, it's the same process to produce Dolly the Sheep, but, you know, it's not clear that that was never really a big risk from this.
2: No, I mean, yeah, there, it's not imminent that humans are going to be cloned anytime soon. Uh, but, you know, I think it is still, you know, there's still questions that it raises that we should think about. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, OK, so maybe we'll have a new grand conflagration over bioethics. Bioethic issue, bioethics issues have just been quiet in the United States since there was a Democratic president. So, you know, for whatever reason, maybe that will uh, maybe that will flare up again and we'll have stem cells to to talk about more.
2: Well, we have a lot of other big problems that we've been focusing on, (laughs) climate change not being a small one.
1: (laughs) So, it's good to walk down the stem cell memory lane. And with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Catherine Hayhoe. I want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment that has over 150,000 titles that you can choose from. And for our listeners, Audible has a great offer a free audiobook. You can get it totally for free. You just have to go to the following website, audiblepodcast.com slash minds. Let me give you some ideas about books you might download from Audible today. You could get a book by one of our last two guests, Mary Roach or Jared Diamond. They have Mary Roach's latest, which is Gulp. Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. And they've also got Jared Diamond's classic Guns, Germs, and Steel. So if you haven't read Guns, Germs, and Steel, this is your chance to have read the book that everybody's read. Or you could get one of my books. Stormworld is over there, and so is The Republican Brain. You could also get Indre's Great Courses series of lectures, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. And then there are over 150 thousand other choices for you to check out. So, head on over and check it out. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash minds. Catherine Hayhoe, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
3: Thanks for having me, Chris.
1: It's wonderful to have you and I want to just congratulate you first on just being named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Wow. Thank you. So uh, how did it come about that you ended up being featured as one of the main characters or personages on the first episode of the Showtime uh, special, The Years of Living Dangerously? How did that happen?
3: Well, I've actually been talking to the producers for a long time, probably almost three years now, uh, because I was one of the first people they contacted when they were first starting to try to figure out what would this show look like, what would the stories that we look like, or what would the stories that we tell look like? Um, my research specifically addresses the impacts of climate change at the local scale where we live. So I study a lot of these kind of human impact stories already looking at how climate change is affecting our water resources, our crops, our wildfire risk, even sometimes our tourism and things like that.
1: And in the in the show, there's one scene where you're actually giving a, a PowerPoint presentation just to one person, Don Cheadle, who is the uh, host of this part of the segment. What was it like to work with him?
3: It was great. He is very knowledgeable about climate change. He's a uh ambassador to the United Nations Environmental Program, and he actually argues with people about climate change all the time on Twitter.
1: Oh really? Yes, <laughs> we should check that out. You should I haven't actually seen that, but that is something that we maybe we'll talk about elsewhere in the show um. In this series, uh, the segment about you is about the relationship between science and religion, and you say that your father was a scientist, but also a missionary. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and how this influences your own outlook?
3: Sure. Uh, My dad is a science educator. He recently retired as the science coordinator for the Toronto District School Board, and now he actually works as a professor at a seminary in Toronto teaching teachers how to teach. Um, He is really the consummate scientist. He just loves science, and he just has this boundless enthusiasm that is so contagious. You can't help but thinking science is the coolest thing in the world when you're around my dad. So growing up like that, it's no surprise that I also thought that science was the coolest thing in the world, which it is, of course. (laughs) And uh, also growing up though um, my dad is a person of faith my whole family is and for him there was never any conflict between the idea that there's a God and the idea that science explains the world that we see around us Um, when we were 9 years old my dad picked us all up we moved down to Columbia, South America where my parents were working as missionaries in the local church and as educators as they always have in, in local schools so that was Really, probably a life changing experience for me because, you know, picking up from our typical life that we have here in North America and moving down to a country where, you know, some of my friends lived in houses that were made out of um, cardboard tied boxes or corrugated metal um, and realizing that you don't really need that much to be happy. Um, But at the same time, you're very vulnerable to the environment around you the less that you have. And so growing up there really helped me understand how... Now I see how climate change can affect people when you you don't live in a house made of bricks and you don't have insurance and you don't have the resources to get in your car and drive away if a hurricane or some other type of event is happening. There's there's so many people in the world who don't have access to those resources and they are the people who are being most affected by climate change.
1: And this is probably a good bridge into talking about how you motivate other evangelical Christians to care about climate change is partly uh, by telling them how much you have to take care of people who need help mm-hmm. and tying it into that narrative. Would that be right?
3: Absolutely. For a long time, I think we've we've seen caring about climate change as an issue where we need to almost instill new values in people. It's like there's almost been a perception that everybody has to be a tree hugger if they're going to care about <laughs> climate change. But I think that nearly everybody on this planet already has the values that they need to care about climate change because it is affecting the things that we already care about. It's affecting our lives. It's affecting our economics. It's affecting our bank balances. It's affecting our kids and their health. It's affecting everything around us today. and so. Just as people living on this planet, it makes sense to care about climate change because this is the only planet that we have right now. I know we've been discovering some exciting new exoplanets lately, but we don't have any way to get there there yet. So (laughs) this is all we've got. And then as Christians, I think we even have further motivation because at the heart of the Christian faith is the idea of love of loving our neighbor, of caring for others, as loving others as Christ loved us, particularly caring for the poor and the vulnerable and the people who can't or are not able to care for themselves. So if that's at the core of our faith, then that gives us even more reason to care about climate change because it is affecting people and is disproportionately affecting the poor and the vulnerable and those who cannot care for themselves.
1: And and I get the sense that this is this kind of message is making some inroads in the evangelical community, but at the same time, um, the data show there's not really any denying that this is a group of people who are more likely to not believe in climate change than the average American. I'll just give you a stat. A recent study from the Yale Group on Climate Change Communication found that 64% of Americans as a whole but only 44% of evangelical Christians agree that climate change is caused by human activities. So there's some kind of resistance there. There has to be.
3: Yes, there absolutely is. But the good news is that compared to the last study that asked that same question by the Pew Foundation back in 2008, we are up more than 10%. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually really good news. Um, it. Wh- a lot of what I do was actually motivated by that Pew study back in 2008 that looked at people's perspectives on climate change and broke it down by denomination and by race. And I have to say it was so discouraging to see white evangelicals at the very, very bottom of the list. At that time, they were, it was about 33% of people. Um, who categorize themselves as white evangelicals would agree that climate was changing because of human activities. So to to know that evangelicals have gone up to 44% is actually a huge encouragement. And I think part of that is because we are starting to recognize as a community that this issue is not incompatible with our values. In fact, it is entirely compatible with our values. It's not that we have to grow the, you know, this new set of values um, that are unchristian. Um, and I think that applies to all of us. It applies to conservative values, because what's more conservative than conserving our natural resources, making sure we have enough for the future, and not wasting them like we are today? That's a very conservative value.
1: Uh, there are, st- but there is still resistance and so I want to actually get you to react to a quotation um, this is from Senator James Inhofe um, and what he does is he actually cites uh, religious reasons for doubting climate change and so if we can play that clip
0: Genesis 8.22 that I use in there is as long as the earth remains there will be springtime, harvest, cold and heat winter and summer, day and night my point is God's still up there And this is the arrogance of people to think that we, human beings, would be able to change what he is doing in the climate is, to me, outrageous.
1: So what do you think of that?
3: It's a common argument that people bring up that if God is in control, this couldn't be happening. It's easy to counter that argument because all we have to do is look around at the world. Are bad things happening? Yes, all the time. Someone gets drunk, they get behind the wheel of a car, they kill an innocent bystander possibly even a child or a mother. These things happen because we have the free will to make decisions, good or bad, and we bear the consequences of those decisions. So that's really what climate change is. It's it's a casualty of the decisions that we have made. We didn't know back in the 1700s that digging all of this coal and gas and oil out of the ground and burning it was going to radically alter our atmosphere to the extent that it has. We didn't know what the consequences of of our actions would be. But today we know what those consequences are, and that's why we really need to do something about this issue and take some action to reduce the impact we're having on our planet.
1: So, if you live in a world uh, in which you are surrounded by liberals, and I actually do, um, then (laughs) there's this idea about evangelicals and climate change, which is, I don't know how true it is, and that's why I'm going to ask you, which is a bunch of them just think like the world's going to end. They're apocalyptic. And so, why should they care? Like, maybe it's even good um, that things are going to pot because that'll bring on the end times. I mean, is is that actually... Do people really feel that way?
3: Oh, yeah. In fact, um, we had to have a chapter in our book, the book my husband and I wrote together, that actually specifically addressed that very issue. Um, It's a very common argument. But again, it's very easy to counter directly from the Bible itself, because in the book of Thessalonians, um, the Apostle Paul writes to the people in Thessalonica and says, I've heard that you've been quitting your jobs. You have been laying around and doing nothing because you think that you know, that Christ is returning and the world is ending. He says, this is not the way we live. He says, get a job. Support yourself and your family, care for others, again, the poor and the vulnerable who can't care for themselves, and do what you can, essentially, to make the world a better place, because nobody knows when that's going to happen. So we have very clear direction, actually, in the Bible itself, that we are not just to sit on our hands and say, oh, the world's going to end anyways, let's just wait for that to happen. We have very clear direction that we are here on earth for a very specific purpose, and that is to love and care for other
1: people so for from the perspective of someone who isn't a believer um what's difficult about this is that you know there's all these parts of the Bible, and you can you can quote one and you can you can take this message from it, but then someone can quote another and take a different message from it um and you know how do you how do you ultimately parse who's right um when there's a lot of things in there in fact, the language about which is ultimately what this whole issue comes down to if I understand it right, is the language about dominion. Uh, In the book of Genesis, which is how you interpret how you're supposed to relate to the environment, can be taken in different ways.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, the issue of cherry picking is not one that is isolated to science itself. Um, we're all familiar with how, if you know, if you cherry pick the global temperature record, you can make temperature go up and down, and you could pretty much make it play Mary had a little lamb if you wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> just by picking the right years. Um, in the same way with the Bible, you can pick any single individual verse or phrase out of context, and you can make it say almost anything you would want it to say. That's why work like what my husband does as a pastor is so important, and what that's the reason why we have the field of theology, where people actually systematically study the Entire Bible to figure out what is the actual context? What is the real message here? Um, you know, how do we reconcile things that appear to be saying different things with each other? Because we have, you know, if we're Christians, if we believe the Bible to be true, it has to be giving us a consistent message. And so the, the message that we don't care about anybody else you know, screw everybody and let the world burn. <laughs> that that message is not a consistent message in the Bible. Um, also, the message that we are in charge of everything, therefore we can just do whatever we want with it is also not consistent. I mean, if you believe that God created the world and basically gave it to humans as this incredible gift to live on, then why would you treat it like garbage? Treating the world like garbage says a lot about how you think about person who you believe created the earth. Um, And that's not consistent with the way that we should be behaving. You know, if somebody you love gave you an incredible gift, and you essentially pooped on it, (laughs) that would be really rude.
1: (laughs) But still, you know, this, this issue of interpretation is is not entirely clear to me. So what I want to do is I want to actually have another clip here um, from a Christian, I think he's a Catholic, um, Rick Santorum, but he's a conservative, and he's, he's constantly bashing climate science. Uh, and here's his interpretation of what the Bible means when it comes to um, taking care of the environment. We were put on this earth as creatures of God to have dominion over the earth, to use it wisely and steward it wisely, but for our benefit, not for the earth's benefit. So he has stewardship in there, but then he's saying, no, humans are what are, are who are important.
3: <laughs> I, yeah. And the first half of what he said, I think it's great. Um, stewardship and caring and caretaking is a fantastic way to look at the way we we can um, interact with the earth. I think that the second half of his quote, though, emphasizes a common misconception that cl- caring about climate change is not caring about people. Um, to put this in even more blunt terms, I think there's this perception that if an environmentalist were driving down the road and in, in your hybrid, of course, and, <laughs> and my hybrid, um, if an environmentalist were driving down the road and they saw a baby seal on one side and they saw a human on the other side, they would veer out of the way to avoid the baby seal and run, and run down the human. I mean, that's kind of the, the, um, taking that argument to its ultimate conclusion, that's the perception that many people have. And so that's why I think it's so important to emphasize that climate change is a human problem. The earth, if we're going to be really honest, the earth is going to survive. The question is how many humans are going to survive if we continue on our current pathway, because we depend on our environment. Everything that we have comes from our environment, air, water, food, and the materials to make the chair we're sitting on and the equipment we're talking into right now. So we can't pretend as if we're somehow divorced or isolated from our environment. Caring for our environment is caring for people.
1: So you've had um, some run-ins with the conservative uh, wing, people who don't accept climate change, and I understand that um, you'd written a chapter about climate science for a book by Newt Gingrich, um, but then conservatives caught on to that, and Rush Limbaugh criticized it, and then the chapter, if I'm getting this right, the chapter was taken out. So what happened with that?
3: That's right. Um, As far as I know, the entire book was canned, but I could be wrong. I haven't had an update recently. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean... That, w- that was um, a couple of years ago, and it's too bad because that effort was really an encouraging effort to bring very different group of people together to talk about this issue and about potential solutions to this issue. Because it highlights an interesting thing that I've noticed, and you probably have too, Chris, that when you talk to people who don't think climate change is real— They'll often have many arguments related to the science or related to how the scientists can't be trusted. But if you talk long enough, and often it doesn't take more than a couple of sentences, you immediately transition to how they don't like the solutions, about how they have, they they don't like that the solutions involve taxation or government legislation or government interference in people's lives. And so in nine cases out of 10, people don't want to accept the reality of this scientific issue because they don't like the solutions that have been offered. And that's why I think one of the most important areas of research right now is figuring out solutions to this problem that don't um, don't seem like like a penalty almost, you know, um, where it's like I have my nice, you know, my nice shiny new iPhone and you're trying to take it away from me and give me one of those clunky old phones from the 1980s. That's kind of the way I think a lot of pe- people picture the solutions to climate change. We We need solutions that... Um, that work for us, that are economically feasible, that are cool, um, and that everybody can get on board with. And we're getting those solutions, actually. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, Texas, the state of Texas, smashed the records for the most wind energy ever produced. It was 38% of our energy that week came from wind. And so it is happening. And I think that as the solutions become more widespread, we're going to see a change in attitudes as well.
1: Yeah, I was recently driving across Kansas, and I drove for 20 minutes straight um, through wind farms. Yeah, in, I was like, whoa. In and this is not like, in Kansas. So, there, I mean, in the middle of America that we associate with being conservative, it happens, happens to be a good place for wind.
3: Yeah, I know. In fact, if you look at a map of where the most, most, where the greatest potential is for wind energy, it's right up the red states. And I think that's going to make a big difference in the future.
1: So I want to move on and, and spend some time on this issue of the relationship between science and religion. On the years of Living Dangerously, you're presented as, as basically a person who can bridge this gap. And you say on the show, by studying science, we're studying what God was thinking when he created the universe. So does that mean you see zilch conflict or you just don't see conflict on the climate change issue?
3: Um, in terms of what I know the most about in terms of climate change science, I definitely see no, co- no conflict at all. Um, in other areas of science, we can't deny that for, you know, a couple hundred years, if not more, <laughs> there have been ongoing conflicts between faith and science or between religion, I should say, and science, not necessarily faith. Um, I think my personal perspective on those areas are that we perceive a conflict because we don't have enough information, Sometimes we don't have enough information in the science department, and sometimes we don't have enough information in the in the faith department. Um, and so, I really have have faith and have confidence that the more we learn, um, as we learn more, these inconsistencies and apparent incompatibilities will become reconciled with each other.
1: So, I want to I want to draw attention to one issue in particular. I mean, let's switch to evolution, um, because in your book um, with your husband, uh, you actually say in there. Um, you, you say, we do not believe that life came from nothing or that humans evolved from apes. So would you actually be someone who doesn't accept evolution?
3: Um, I believe that humans have uh, a body and a soul and a spirit. And the spirit is what sets us apart from other living beings. And so I believe that the spirit was, is the part of us that um, comes from God and connects from God and is not something that evolved but um, aside from that i mean my undergraduate degree and my first publications were all in uh, in astrophysics i was studying uh, quasars and galaxy clustering around quasars that have um redshifts that are quite quite old so i am certainly um, on board with the science of the of the age of the universe because it really just makes sense i mean either And my husband and I argued this through for a very long time. Um, Either you have to believe that God created everything looking as if it were billions of years old, or you have to believe it is billions of years old. And so at that point, you have a decision. Would God have created things looking that old if they weren't? And some people believe that could be true. Or do you think it really is as old as it looks?
1: Well, I want to go back to this this comment about the soul, because it seems to me that there's two ways you can go on this, and I think one is one you can sustain and one is one that you can't. So, you can say, I accept everything that science says, okay, organic evolution happened, but at some point, some kind of supernatural ensoulment happened that science is never going to detect, all right? It's not even part of science, okay? But I believe it, but I, but I, I accept science for everything that science can prove, Okay, so I so I draw this line and I accept everything we know empirically, but then I have these other things that I don't think are empirically testable. Or, and this is what the intelligent design people do, they try to say that you can measure the supernatural. They try to say um, that there's evidence um, of a designer and the designer is some being that isn't really part of nature, but you can measure it. I mean, in, in that, when you go down that road, it seems to me that you get yourself in all kinds of trouble. So, which one? Are, which one are you on? Um, I, That's a leading question.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. What are you going to do, Chris, when I answer the wrong way? <laughs> no. Um, I, I side with the author of Hebrews who says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. And I would actually extend that to say that science is the evidence of things that we can see and we can measure and we can analyze and we can capture with our five senses. So, I think that there is a distinct difference between what faith tells us and what science can tell us.
1: Let's go, Let's talk about this age of the earth, age of the universe thing, too, because that's got to be where a ton of the resistance um, is coming in, in terms of the evangelical community. Is that right?
3: It could be. Um, and actually... Um, there's an interesting story about that. When I went to speak at Wheaton a couple of years ago, they inv- in Wheaton is a Christian college just outside of Chicago, and it's, it's a, a great college. They have very high levels of scholarship there. Um, when I went there, though, they, they asked somewhat nervously just before I was about to step on stage, they said, are you going to be showing ice core data? And I said, well, actually, I wasn't going to. Why? And they said, well, <laughs> Sir John Houghton came a number of years ago, who was the former head of the IPCC, and who is was also an evangelical Christian. Sir John Houghton came, and he showed that ICE core data going back 800,000 years, and he lost half his audience immediately. So, so I said, well, as a matter of fact, I don't show that when I, when I talk to Christian audiences. I only show ice core data and other proxy data going back 6,000 years because I believe that you can make an even stronger case for the massive way in which humans have interfered with the natural system by only looking at a shorter period of time. Um, if you look at the last 6,000 years, you see this nice, flat, slowly decreasing temperature line slowly decreasing because the next thing on the natural um, time frame is the next ice age. Um, and then all of a sudden in the 1700s, you just see this radical increase in temperature and in carbon dioxide at the same time. And it's even more obvious how huge the impacts of humans are on our climate if we look at shorter timescales. So I think um, that in terms of addressing the climate issue, we don't have time for everybody to get on the same page regarding the age of the universe. That is a battle that's been fought for over 200 years. We have to address climate change now. We don't have um, centuries left. We don't even have decades left. So let's table the argument over how old the earth is for now, and let's and how old the universe is, and let's just get on board with the fact that climate is changing. To agree on the fact that climate is changing due to human activities, we only have to agree that the earth is more than three hundred years old. And I think all of us agree <laughs> <No>. about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's fair. And as a tactic, I think this is fair. But wouldn't you agree with me that you don't really, really understand climate science unless you accept that the earth is old? Because for instance, um, there's the Eocene. It was 50 million years ago. You had a very hot climate, very high carbon dioxide. You have crocodiles swimming in the Arctic. That's where we're headed back to. But if you think the Earth is young, you can't actually know what it was like in the Eocene because you don't think there was an Eocene, right? I mean, so in some sense, you don't really fully appreciate it.
3: Um, it's true, though, Chris. I have to say, during the Eocene, the continents were in a different configuration than they are today. So we cannot head directly back to the Eocene, no matter what we okay.
1: do. Okay, <laughs> right? We'd be in, we'd be in water, I guess. Right? Yeah, right. Or something. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean, though, right? Mm-hmm. I mean.
3: Yeah, no, from, as as a climate scientist, learning from past conditions is a key component of understanding the impact we're having on our planet today. We would know a lot less about climate sensitivity, about how sensitive the planet is to carbon dioxide and methane levels in the atmosphere if we didn't have those historical and paleo records to rely on. So they are an important part of understanding the climate system and its behavior today, but in terms of understanding the fact that climate is changing, humans are responsible, the impacts are severe and potentially dangerous if we continue on our current pathway, and we need to do something about it today. Um, To agree on those points, we don't have to depend only on that information.
1: Fair enough. So, I've heard uh, murmuring suggestions that one reason that there's some resistance to climate science among evangelicals is because there's a resistance to scientists who have given us such unpopular things as evolution and the age of the Earth. So if they gave us those things, like, we're really going to listen to them. I mean, is there any truth to that? Um,
3: I think that there is definitely some truth to that, um, because scientists are often viewed as other, and there are some very strong science stereotypes, not just in evangelical Christian circles, but there's strong stereotypes probably across the world that scientists are basically all, all humanists or atheists. And so that's why I think the work of Elaine Eklund at Rice University is so interesting. She is a sociologist who studies scientists. I always feel a little awkward around her. I feel a little bit like a lab rat, <laughs> like she's observing me and taking notes. Um, but what she does, what Elaine does, is she studies scientists' spirituality and she made a really remarkable discovery recently, which she's written up in a book and a number of articles, that the majority of scientists view themselves as having some type of spirituality. It may not be well-defined. It may not be um, traditional Christianity, but the vast majority of scientists do view themselves ha- as having a spiritual aspect to who they are um, that in turn influences our view on our science and our world.
1: Yeah, I actually am, am familiar with her work, and uh, I I agree. I mean, it, it tur- she showed that scientists were more religious than people thought. Then she showed that the, the spirituality is really strong. A lot of it's this Einstein spirituality, right? It's not any it's not any god that is at all traditional. It's some sense of wonder at the cosmos. It's maybe Carl Sagan spirituality or something. But I mean, that it's it's self defined. Um, they they get some sense of meaning from their work that's actually spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is I guess you know maybe we can wrap up with this. I mean it's clear that you know you've said that the message is working at least somewhat with some evangelicals. I mean what is what is the goal with this community? Um and and how much difference can it make if you really get it get it to turn even more than it has?
3: Well, taking trying to you know assuming the responsibility for actually changing people's minds is a burden that I try to avoid <laughs> because because I feel like um you know, you could give somebody the best arguments in the world, but it's not up to you whether they change their mind. It's up to them. So I feel like my responsibility as a scientist is to provide the information that people need to make good decisions. And there's really nothing more that I can do. You know, we can't reach into people's minds <laughs> and, and and change them. That's not just, you know, that's beyond our capability as humans. Um, but I feel like The conservative community, um, the evangelical community, and many other Christian communities, I feel like we've been lied to. We have been given information about climate change that is not true. We have been told that it is incompatible with our values, whereas, in fact, it's entirely compatible with, with conservative and with Christian values. We have been told that it's an issue that only you know, liberals or only atheists or only Greenpeace or only Al Gore or whatever care about. That's not true. There are people from every walk of society who care about this issue. We've been told that it doesn't matter to us where we live. And that's not true because we're seeing the impacts right here today. Um, and we've been told by people who we trust that it's a hoax, that it's a lie, that that it isn't true. And that is the worst because it is true and it is not a hoax. And it's something we've known about for, you know, almost 200 years that that humans could do something like this. So I feel like my responsibility is, as a scientist, to try to get this information out, to say, you know what, I'm a scientist, I've analyzed the data myself, and I can tell you that climate is changing. I can tell you it's happening because of human activities. I can tell you that we are seeing the impacts today, and these impacts are getting more and more severe the longer we allow this problem to continue unchecked. And not as a scientist... But as a person, I can tell you what my values are, and I can tell you how this issue is not inconsistent with my values, but rather the values I have compel me to speak out on this issue.
1: Well, I think that's a great note to end, end on, and I, I think it's, it's very powerful to, just to hear it now, so I hope that, it, uh, hope that it's working. So thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds, Catherine Hayhoe.
3: Thanks for having me,
4: Chris. Hey, this is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac with a couple quick notes before we move on to the rest of the show. We reached out to Wheaton College to ask if they wanted to respond to Catherine Hayhoe's comments about her experience speaking there. They sent us the following response from Dr. Stephen Mosher, who chairs Wheaton's geology department. Quote, Catherine's anecdote about her experience at Wheaton College is interesting, but simply reflects the well-known debate among evangelical Christians over matters of science like the age of the earth and climate change. In my recollection, both lectures by Sir John Houghton and Catherine Hayhoe were very well received by faculty and students here. In fact, science students would have been already familiar with the basic content of their presentations and understand that they represented legitimate science. Both lectures were open to the public, which probably has more to do with a comment made to Catherine before her lecture, unquote. I also wanted to let you know that the statement we played from Senator Inhofe was from an interview with Voice of Christian Youth America, and that Senator Santorum's comments were posted by Real Aspen and the Colorado Independent. And now back to the show.
2: Well, that was a really thought provoking interview. And I have to say that every time she had a comment or, you know, a, que- a question, often I would say, but, but, and then you would ask the question that was on my mind. So well done, Chris.
1: Well, because uh, we're both, co- we're coming from a similar perspective, right? I mean, you know, of we're, we're in this science skeptic world uh, and we don't actually talk to people of faith that much.
2: That's right. But I also I also didn't feel that uh, that I could just dismiss her comments uh, the way sometimes, you know, people who are particularly on a particular bandwagon is easy to do. Uh, and, And but one thing that really struck me was how she made an analogy between how similarly people cherry pick information or data about climate change to fit their own views. And people do the same thing with the Bible. You know, they cherry pick quotes from the Bible uh, to fit with their own views. So in some ways, she's really uniquely qualified uh, to answer some of the questions that the religious right has about climate change.
1: Right. I mean, we had actual fide bi- not that I checked them. We had real Bible references on Inquiring Minds today, which is definitely a first. We had chapter, chapter and verse. That is where the phrase comes from.
2: Absolutely, and I know I think that that's really important for us to understand to what extent the information that we're getting has been cherry-picked, whether it's from the Bible or from scientists. You know, you know your source is really important.
1: Yeah, well, it isn't. I mean, it isn't different, right? From a psychol, you know, this from a psychological perspective, cherry-picking is cherry-picking. You want to find something that makes you feel good and makes you feel right, and whatever use whatever works, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, it's not like you have super respect for the Bible, you'd never cherry pick it, but you're fine with cherry picking science. No, you're just out there making your case for who you are and you grab onto whatever the evidence is that does it for you.
2: Yeah, but I can see why Time Magazine chose her as one of the influential people for this year. Uh, she, you know, she, hopefully she has a massive influence uh, in the coming time, in the coming years, so that uh, we can get a lot more people acting on uh, climate change. Amen. <laughs>
1: Okay. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds.
2: You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like, really anything to Inquiring Minds at org.
1: We do check it, we swear. And once again, today's show was sponsored by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment that has over 150,000 and titles you can choose from they let you listen to audiobooks whenever wherever you want to and they're offering you our listeners a free audiobook download that you can get by going to audiblepodcast.com/ inquiring Minds once again audiblepodcast.com/ inquiring Minds Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Ryan Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney.
2: And I'm Indre Viscontis.